God, I, I admit, Lord, that sometimes as we approach your word, Lord, we just don't feel worthy of it. Lord, we don't even feel capable of absorbing what it says. And, and God, I, I pray that in this time, every single one of us would be super absorbent to what you want to say. Lord, as your spirit speaks through me, I ask God that it would penetrate our hearts. Lord, I ask for you to do something that I can't do on my own power, and that's to change lives. And Lord, I pray that we would just trust in you, God, in the way that we're supposed to as your church. Lord, as we studied last week, as you are the head and we are the body that functions beneath you, Lord, that without the head we die. God, I pray that we would rely on you in our times of study to teach us, Lord, that you have to be the one that takes us forward in our maturity. But, Lord, you are the, the one who is preserving us at this very moment. So, God, I pray that we would find great value in being in your presence together. Lord, great value in what we hear. And, and Lord, I pray that we would have ears to hear what your spirit wants to say to your church this morning. Open our ears up and our, our understanding, God. Let nothing inhibit us. Don't let any, any kind of fatigue or any kind of, um, Lord, deceptive spirit stop us from hearing what you have to say. Work in this time powerfully, God, for your glory. We ask in your name. Amen. So um, I posted the following quote uh, from Paul David Tripp this last week because I thought it was really uh, encouraging and also uh, a great reminder for us. Um, and I wanted to share it with you guys to begin our time together. He said this, he said, the church is not a theological classroom. It is a conversion, confession, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification center where flawed people place their faith in Christ, gather to know and love him better, and learn to love others as he designed. Um, oftentimes, we can approach this time as seeing ourselves being in a theological Center, You know, like, well, this is where I hear good sound theology and that grows my mind. And that's not bad. Um, it's, you know, it's my goal to always provide sound theology when I teach. Um, but that's not our goal is just to have sound teaching here. And, and one of my favorite Bible teachers said this. He said, every time I teach the word, I try to begin with concept creation. And he says, the reason I begin with concept creation is because you can teach or preach a perfect message that makes sense to people. But if they don't know how it applies to their lives... It's useless. If all they hear is what you're saying and, and it makes it makes sense in, in the way like, well, that sounds true or that, you know, you explained your point very well and that makes sense. But that, that's great. But if they don't know how to apply that to their own lives, to their own hearts, to their own walk, it's pointless. Because every person here, myself included, approaches the word of God with an expectation of being changed by him and being in a, in a position of furthering our walk and growing in the Lord. And we shouldn't just be hearing theology that doesn't apply to us directly. And so I think that keeping that in mind, um, what Tripp said, that this, this is not a theological classroom, although good theology should be taught here. This is a place where we see conversion where we see confession, where we see repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification, where all of these things are happening as the word of God penetrates our hearts. And so we have to commit to each other. Um, in the early days of this ministry, as really the founding group of this ministry that God's doing in this city, um, that we're going to hold to this type of thinking. That we're going to come here with a sobriety and a willingness to be changed by God. Because here's the thing, if we are just set up here to be a rec center, 
or to be a program center or just to get together and do, um, you know, what church does, meaning we just get together, we're just going through formalities or we're just going through routine or habit, then we're not going to have an impact on this community. And so we have to be a place, we have to be a people who are coming to this place of reconciliation with God. Always as a church coming to to the Lord saying, are we good? Am I right? Search my heart and know me. David knew the Lord well when he wrote Psalm 139. He said, search my heart and know me. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wickedness in me. Lead me in the way that's everlasting. David was, he was in relationship with God at that point and that teaches us something vital. We are always coming to the Lord going, more. I need more of you and not being demanding of him, but desiring more of him. Desiring that he would work in us. I think the minute that we become a place of program or routine or habit is the day that we should shut the doors. I think we have to come here as a people that is a functioning living body being led by the lordship and the superiority of Christ. That's what we're here to do is be led by him. And God is moving So the church cannot remain stagnant when they're connected to him. We have to move with the Lord, which means we have to be sensitive and we have to walk. And it's challenging. That's a challenging way to live our lives, but it's the only way. So my goal, you guys, is not to merely just give you good theology, although that's important. It's to spur us on. It's to go do things with you guys. It's to get out in the community. It's to be a functioning body together. We have to face this, you guys. We could... I could just teach sound theology from behind a microphone for a podcast and that has its value, but that's not church. This is church getting together, fellowshipping and doing things together, doing life together is church. And it's why we're working hard um, to put together some home groups that you guys can be a part of so that we are living life together, not just meeting once a week and then doing the majority of our week alone that we're actually getting together and functioning together as a body and getting into the community and having an impact because we're here to know and love Jesus better and to learn and practice loving each other as he intended. Amen? It's our goal. And you guys, what's great is we get to do it together. I'm right in this with you. We're side by side through this whole thing. That's what we're here to do. And so I was really encouraged by those words from um, Paul David Tripp, and I just want to encourage you guys with it. Um, and as we look at Colossians 1 today, I really want to fan into flame what's being taught here. I want to encourage you with it. I want to pour a little gas on it, you know, and, and if you've ever seen someone do that, it's a lot of fun, isn't it? So you're like, actually, it's very destructive. Oh, maybe it'll destroy our flesh. Maybe that's what we need. Maybe we need to bring flesh forward. Maybe we need to bring sin forward and just destroy it right here. Because Paul didn't play around with his, his uh, phrasing when it comes to sin. Paul wasn't like, you really ought to just, you know, at least put that in a room where you don't see it very often. Paul never said that. He's like, kill it, crucify it, smash it, you know, absolutely slaughter your sin. Don't play games with it. And so we've noticed this. When we, when we come and we want to be changed by God, we begin with Jesus. And that's really what this first chapter of Colossians has been all about, beginning with Jesus, focusing on Jesus. And we recognize that we've studied already that Jesus is not only the creator, the savior, he's also the sustainer of all that we are, emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually. He's sustaining everything that we are. He's the essential head to our body, not essentially the head. He is the essential head, meaning that you cut off the head, the body dies right? You separate us from Jesus, John 15's in play. I'm the vine, you are the branches. You know, if you're not connected to him, you die. And so he is essential 
to our leadership, to the body, to the church, and God's proven his love for us from the beginning of time by sending Jesus and reconciling us through him by his sacrifice on the cross. We get that. Like, okay, yeah, we've, we've gotten that far, right? There's so much more. Paul's just beginning. He's just warming up, you know? And we can't be like Eutychus in the window and fall out of the window when we get tired. We need to stay focused, right? And you, I'm sure you've had sermons like that where you felt that way. You know, it's like, oh, is this guy ever going to stop? <laughs> you know, just glad that you're not sitting on a window sill when that happens. So, with the word of reconciliation, God reconciling us to himself on our minds, let's look at Colossians chapter 1 and pick up in verse 21. We're going to read these three verses, and then we'll study them together. And he says this as he continues on. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. As Paul talks about where we were, he says once past tense. At one time, you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions. And so church, recon, recollection, when we're, t- when we're thinking about reconciliation, I have to be careful because I'm going to mix these two up and say some kind of weird Pauline word that doesn't mean anything. Recalling or recollection of the past, it gives us perspective on our present. Recollection of the past gives us perspective on our present. And the reason it's important to remember, we aren't called to dwell on it. You're not meant to dwell on your past and feel condemned by it, but we're to remember these things to, to see just where he's brought us. I mean, it's like that aging thing as you look like 10 years back or Facebook loves to remind us of this all the time. You know, seven years ago on this day, I was like, I was better looking than I am now. Hmm. You know, 10 years ago on this day, you know, your children were small and, and, you know, all the moms in the room start weeping because, you know, their kids, oh, 10 years ago, I remember like it was yesterday, (laughs) you know, and you're like, they're there. It's okay. They're still lovely children. We just don't like them as much. I'm kidding. It's, you you just like them just as much. I'm just joking. (laughs) Some are laughing. Some are like, "Mm mm-hmm. I'm just kidding. You guys, remembering what God's done for us in Christ. When we look at the past, we should see that progress forward, right? We should see a walk. We should see growth. We should see a regeneration that's happening, sanctification that's happened in our lives. And so looking back in that recollection can be really good. And Paul says, once you were alienated, hostile in your minds, and it expressed itself in evil actions. When we think about what God has done for us through Jesus, To think that we can be enticed by sin when we know so well, not only where it takes us, but how it positions us as the enemy of God. Why would we even consider it? Recognizing that your sin is not just a, well, I kind of slipped back into some old habits. Just be honest with yourself, and I have to do the same. When we slip back into old habits, we are repositioning ourselves as enemies against God. You are taking a position of being an enemy against God. That's what it truly is. It's as if Paul wants the church in Colossae to understand the magnitude of their ingratitude should they allow themselves to be drawn away from Jesus. If you allow yourself to be drawn away from Jesus, you need to understand what a massive showing of ingratitude towards the sacrifice of Christ that that is. They needed to remember what they've been saved from. Because remember, there's some heresy that's coming in. We're about to get to that part of the letter. 
there's some heresy that's been happening. He says, you understand that this heresy isn't just some weird teaching that you can kind of dabble in. He says, you are going back to the old ways. You are repositioning yourself as an enemy of God. Don't play around with sin. Recognize what it's actually doing to you because God's position doesn't change. And so when we change, when we go to this, this old sinful life, we are standing against him as we used to. And he says, once you were there, you were hostile, you were alienated. And we don't want to go back to that. He wants us to remember and remember that we've been reestablished as his children, even though when we were born into this world of sin, we were separated from the position we were supposed to have in the beginning. Never forget that. Some people go, yeah, we, uh, we began this life as sinners. That's true. But human beings did not begin as sinners. Human beings began in the right place in the garden in perfect relationship with God. That's what God made us for. He made us for relationship with him. But sin has changed that. And apart from Jesus, it's there that we would still be in that place of separation. Paul describes it in Romans 8, verses 6 through 8. He says this, Now the mindset of the flesh, our past life, the part that we remember, he says, The mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. Recognize the difference of where we stand now. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If we're walking in the flesh, we are not pleasing to God. Do you notice that? If you're walking in the flesh, it doesn't matter how much good you try to do. Walking in the flesh is apart from Christ. It doesn't matter how much good you try and do or what your intention is. Apart from Christ, you can't please God. And that's why he said, once you were, this means that in Jesus, we are no longer alienated. In Christ, we are no longer alienated away from him. The difference between a believer and a non-believer, it's not just forgiveness. It's a complete change of status. It's a complete change of status of who you are. No longer separated from, but now reconciled to. And so he continues that, and that thought of changing of identity of who we are needs to be ever present on the Christian mind. Because individualism and being known for what you can do is very big in our culture. Being identified as a person who does this, you know, that, that's a big thing for us. And are we finding our identity in Christ? Because he says, you were in the past in the flesh. Now you're in the spirit and you are identified in Christ. That's how God sees us. And we need to think far more about how God views us and not how we view ourselves. Because you understand that your heart is still desperately wicked. Your heart is still struggling against us. Now, in the spirit, it's given and, and, and submitted to God. But when we, when we struggle with sin, your heart, your flesh, your fleshly desires are getting raised up to go against what God has done, to be against the new man. And so our change of identity is important. I am no longer for myself. I am in Christ. When God sees me, he sees Jesus. When he looks at me, he looks at Christ. That's how amazing our salvation is, a complete change of status. And so he continues on in verse 22. He says, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. The counter for alienation is reconciliation. That's the natural counter. 
If you're alienated away from God, separated away from God, the counter to that is reconciled unto God. That's him setting the record straight. But what's interesting about this is that we have choice in the matter. We have choice in the matter. He has extended his hand all the way to us saying, I've done everything necessary for you to be reconciled to me, but people must choose for or against that reconciliation. Even though the offer for their salvation has been made, we watch people every day reject it. That's hard to fathom, isn't it? It's hard to think about people who reject a hand that's extended all the way saying, this is your eternity that's at stake. And God has entrusted to us as an aside to this before we go forward. He's entrusted to us, as we talked about last week, that message of reconciliation that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5. Great companion chapter for this chapter. 2 Corinthians 5, he says, we, our message as ambassadors is be reconciled to God. God says, the way that people are going to know that they're alienated from me is when his people, his body, the church tells them. When we reveal it to them and we cry out to the lost world, be reconciled to God. It's come to us. God has chosen us to do this. And it's crazy because I don't feel qualified, do you? I mean, we shouldn't feel like, oh yeah, I'm totally ready for this. You're ready to go tell the lost world that they need to be reconciled to God. You're ready to go prove that to him. Now we can be ready to say the message, but I don't feel equipped for that unless the spirit's with me. I don't feel equipped for that unless God has filled me with the spirit and sent me out to do it, which he has. What's awesome about this is the message that we preach is not self-help. It's not people getting themselves cleaned up so that they can then go see God. You know, put on, you know, put on a better face for this. You're going to see God. It's like my mom used to tell me before I went to church. I mean, she'd be appalled if she saw me this morning the way I was dressed. You know, get, just put on your best. God's there. It's like God's here too, and I'm in my underwear. I mean, I, I, he's okay with that. You know, God is okay with this. It's like, no, you need to clean yourself up and look good for God today. Okay, I'll, I think I'm looking good for you, not necessarily God, but you, you understand what, I, it, there's nothing wrong with dressing up because like, see, I should be able to wear raggedy t-shirts. Just listen to your parents. Okay. Ephesians 6, 1, children obey your parents and the Lord for it is right. I memorized that one. Do you notice that? Didn't have to look it up. It's because I have kids, but here's the thing. If you guys think about this, we are not meant to try and dress ourselves up to look good to God. That's not our job. That's not our job. In fact, there's no action credited to human beings in this verse for being part of the reconciliation process. Did you notice that? Look at it. He has reconciled you by his physical body through his death. How much is that about us? He did the reconciliation. He used his own physical body, Jesus did to get the work done. And he has done that through his death on the cross, not yours and not mine. He did all the work. That's why we don't boast in ourselves because we had nothing to do with the reconciliation process. God just hand was down. Oh, I like that, right? You didn't do anything to extend that down. He did that. We just choose yes. We just say yes to the Lord, right? It's like that song that I get asked to sing every time I'm in Africa. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. You know, and they, they love it still. It's very modern to them and it's like 25 years old. You guys, God did not meet us halfway when it comes to salvation, right? You recognize that. God didn't meet us halfway. He's not like, okay, it's a long drive for reconciliation. Meet me in Spirit Lake, right? He didn't say that. He went all of the way. 
all the way and invites us to receive the gift. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You know these verses. For who, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. You didn't do it. You didn't work this out. You didn't figure it out. And what was the goal of reconciliation? What was his goal to do this? We always say to save me. And that's not wrong. But do you notice what Paul says in Colossians? To present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Holy, faultless, blameless. Now, I'm not going to do turn to your neighbor and ask them if you're really, if you're really that way. Right? I mean, I don't want my wife to stand up here next to me and be like, hey, babe, am I holy, faultless, and blameless? <laughs> She'd be like, not even in the last 30 seconds, right? Oh, and you're like, oh, but it's true. Oh, but it's true. Now, hold on a second. Christ's reconciliation purified us so that we can stand before the Father, clean, holy, faultless, and blameless. That's what Paul said. And the way we view ourselves and the way that scripture defines us can sometimes differ. So let me ask you this this question. Church, those in Christ, which I hope is every single person in this room, are you wholly faultless and blameless? You're like, this is a trick question. I'm not going to give him a mm or mm. He's just going to have to tell it, right? Now think about that. What did scripture just say? That Jesus, through his sacrifice, through the works that he, commi- that he did, through his purchase, that he has reconciled us, through everything that Jesus did, If you answer no, that's heresy. Like, well, this is new. (laughs) If you say no, if, if I ask you, are you wholly faultless and blameless as a follower of Christ? We must say yes, because it's not based on us. He has purchased us. He has cleansed us past, present, and future. Meaning that even when I make a mistake, it's covered. Now, As someone who's in love with the Lord, I'm not like, let's send it up. Let's do whatever we want. It's already paid for, you know? No, that's not a loving response at all. In fact, I question the heart that feels that way. And you could look at that in Romans chapter six when Paul says, should we sin more so that grace should abound more? What does he say? Certainly not. No, emphatically no. But I want you guys to think about this. If I was to ask you without reading that passage from Colossians, if I didn't read Colossians 1.22 to you and I said, are you holy, blameless, and faultless? What would we respond with? No. People around me will tell you so. That's not how God sees you. Now, that doesn't give you an excuse for sin. In fact, it gives you a heightened awareness to it. But what it tells you is this. God doesn't see you the same way that you see you. God looks at you and sees his son. Your identity is in Christ now, and so you are holy, faultless, blameless, if you walk in that, if you live in that. We must be holy. This is why if we understand this idea of who we are in Christ, of how that changes us, we understand passages like 1 Peter 1 a lot better. Verses 14 through 16, I don't know if you guys have read this before and been like, this isn't working for me. I don't think I'm doing this. First Peter 1, 14 through 16, as obedient children, notice the obedience. By the way, we're all children in this context. All the kids are like, what qualifies as a child? Everybody. Do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. 
the once was, the past, the alienation, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. God calls us to walk in that holiness. He calls us to live it out. No longer alienated, but reconciled. No longer disobedient conformity to the world, but rather obedient, holy conduct that reflects the Father. Did you notice that part? Your conduct is not what's saving you. Your conduct is what validates who you are. Your conduct validates who you are. It proves what you believe. James talks about this extensively in chapter two of his letter. Because you can't say that you have faith without works. You can't say that you believe in God, that you love God, and then live a totally different lifestyle. He says that's not together. That doesn't work. These things have to go together. And so Peter is just emphasizing a point that Paul's just made. Because of what Jesus has done, walk that out. Reflect God properly. And that is, a, that is holiness. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. But it means that we can be. Why would God ask us to be holy if we can't be? Is he trolling us? I don't think so. God is calling us to be something that he's empowered us to be. He's calling us to walk in the truth that he has said we are. You're blameless. You're holy. You're faultless. This is who we are in Christ. And we sit around going, oh, I'm never going to get it right. He's empowered you to do so. Get up. It's like the writer of Hebrews said in chapter 12. He's like, strengthen your weak knees. Get up. Quit crawling around on the ground. He's like, God's disciplining you because of sin, but he's revealing to you how much he loves you like a good father does. Stand up, walk forward. And Peter warns us in the same way that Paul does in 1 Peter 1.14, the second half, he goes, don't be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. Look at verse 23, the very beginning of it, as Paul writes, if indeed you may remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. They're warning us, don't shift away, don't walk away, don't conform to the desires of former ignorance. When we recognize a temptation in our lives, we have to associate it with former ignorance. Associate it with former frailty and recognize who we are now. We can't go back there again. Remaining grounded doesn't mean that we established that ground. When you look at the ground you're on, spiritually standing on in your life. You didn't create that. You didn't make that. We stand on the rock, amen? That's Jesus himself. And so you didn't establish that ground, he did. He just says, stay there, stay on that ground. Now it's moving ground because we're in a walk. You're like, how does this analogy apply? Well, it, we understand it because he, he's moving, he's doing things. God isn't stagnant, but we are to find our footing in him. Don't shift away from that. It means that we stand firm on what was already there, what he established there. And so everything in our life is based off of that. Everything in our life is based on the footing. Is this in Christ? Is this what God's calling me to do? The devil wants to knock us off the truth of God and prevent us from walking in reconciliation. He is after that. His goal is to knock us off that ground. First Peter continues on in, in chapter five and he says this in verses nine through 11. This is so good. Resist him, that's the devil, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. You're not alone. We are not alone. Verse 10, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you suffered for a little while. 
He says to be to him be dominion forever. Amen. Notice how Paul ended that. God has all the power. God holds all the keys. Satan does nothing that God does not allow him to do. God isn't allow it doesn't like endorse evil, but God holds all the keys. And so recognize this, when we resist the enemy, we are resisting him with God's power behind us. And we know this from that other passage of scripture that we recall often, resist the devil and he will what? Slap you? What does it say? Flee. Why? Because you're so tough? It's not my toughness. Trust me. It has nothing to do with my toughness. It's the God who stands behind me that puts his arm around and goes, mm-mm, not this time. And he'll let the enemy come after us. What's funny is people are like, why is God letting the enemy attack us? That doesn't make sense. God let the enemy attack his son. Didn't he? Temptation in the wilderness. He went out there in a weakened physical state and faced the devil face to face. And what happened? Jesus stood him down. How? Empowered by the Holy Spirit. What drove him into the wilderness? You Bible scholars, the Spirit did. Right? The Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness, and the Spirit empowered him through that. What was Jesus doing? Setting an example for us. If you want to resist the devil, be Spirit-filled, and you can do it. It also helps to know your Bible really well, because the enemy will not only attack you with which you can stand against him with the Word of God, but he's even going to try and throw Scripture at you. You ever have someone throw a Scripture, and you're like, "Uh, I know that's wrong. Give you 10 minutes. But like, you, you ever been in that place? We need to know our word. We need to be ready to fight with that sword. You know, it's, it's like Paul encouraged Timothy is like, study to show yourself approved. You need to be able to rightly handle the word of truth. And I described it to my youth kids so many times. I said, a person with a drawn sword swinging it about like a crazy person in a crowd is a big problem. A person with a drawn sword who knows how to use that sword in a crowd is not a problem because they're trained they know how to execute, not like they know how to execute properly, but you understand what I'm saying? If we know how to rightly, here's the, probably a poor choice of words. If, if you, if you understand how to use the weapon that God has given you in this world, you can be skilled in any situation and get God's work done. Does that make sense? God has all the power. He has all the dominion forever, not shifting in our hope being grounded and steadfast in faith. God doesn't leave us to do that on our own power. Thank you, Lord. He empowers us to stand. To go back to a life of alienation and hostility towards God not only denies what he's done, but what he is doing currently to strengthen us against that desire. Not only do we go back to it and stand against him as enemy, we're denying the power that's at work in us. We're suppressing. You you know, it's interesting because... This is an interesting dynamic that's real and true from scripture. You realize that God allows us to suppress his power in us. He allows us to walk down these paths. He gives us the choice. Sometimes don't you wish God would just override the system? You know, you're like, hmm, I think I'm going to give into that. T- you just start walking away from you. Like I am not in control of myself right now. You know, you just walk away from it. I wish that would happen. God's like, no, you're not going to, I'm just overriding the system. Just go this way. But God will give us the choice. Like God, well, how did I get here? What happened? He's like, you came here. I warned you 3,422 times. Oh, once more, I would have got it. I'm sure. 
You guys, never go back. Never go back to what you were before. Remember this. Philippians 2.13 says this, For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. He is training you to do the work that he has. He's working it in you both to will and to work, but it still comes down to us doing it. He still gives us the option to do it. And if we're attempting to shift to the mindset of the flesh, we're striving against what God is working inside of us to accomplish. That is exhausting. This is why the flesh, living in the flesh or giving into sin is absolutely exhausting to us to the point where we're stressed out about it all the time. You know, Jesus told us not to be anxious about anything, but we're just depressed, you know, anxious, stressful nightmares half the time. You know, and it's amazing what can stress us out. I had the best morning this morning. You guys would not believe it. Quick story. It was rad. 6 a.m. I'm up. Uh, no one else in the house is awake. I'm praying. I'm reading. I'm like, oh, this is, this is so spiritual. Hallelujah me right now. <laughs> I went outside in the garage to get the dogs out of the kennels. Flesh. Nothing but flesh. Poop everywhere. Dog tore the paper up, picked him up. He smeared it on my sweatshirt. I went to put him outside. He kicked me. He wouldn't obey. I had to chase him out into the snow, my bare feet. I'm standing out there. Here! Right? So frustrated. And God hits me in the moment. So spiritual, huh? <laughs> All I needed was a puppy to prove you wrong. <laughs> it is a moment-by-moment moment thing to be aware of ourselves, isn't it? You're laughing because you've been there. You know, if it wasn't the dog, it was our kids when they were little. How did your diaper go? Where did your diaper go? You know, like these types of things happen and God does this to humble us. He does it to humble us and remind us, you can't do anything without my help. You're like, oh yes I can. I'm gonna duct tape that thing on tonight and it's never coming off again. Like, it says 20 pounds, we're gonna test it. But here's the thing. That's not what the 20 pounds thing means, by the way, on the diapers. <laughs> you guys, <laughs> God is allowing us to be tested to show us that we need to stay close to him. You're like, it's not meant to make me feel bad about who I am? No, he doesn't want you to feel condemned. Read Romans 8.1. He doesn't want you to feel condemned. He wants you to realize how desperately you need him and how close you need to stick to him, that it is a difficult task to stay on this ground that is solid and to not shift from what we believed in. And we need to be so aware of crying out to God in the moment, in the flesh, right before I came to church to teach you guys. Isn't that great? That should make you feel really wonderful. You're like, doesn't make me feel wonderful what you're teaching right now. It should make you feel like we're all in this together. I understand. I get it. I'm going through this all the time, just like you are. But here's the thing. Are we growing? Are we learning? Are we stopping out there in the snow with our feet frozen going, you're right. I can't believe I'm standing out here right now. I didn't have the sense to put shoes on. But that's who we are without the Lord. That's who we are when we let the flesh happen. And it's actually exhausting to work against God who's willing and, and building us up from the inside. What God wants to do is change us from the inside and get us in this place where we are so submitted to him that the gospel is proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Look at the second half of verse 23. He says, I've become a servant of that. The gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. He says, all, I, Paul, have become a servant of that. 
That's more of a servant as in a minister, by the way. A lot of people see servant, they always think doulos. It's not bond slave. It's not the same Greek word that Paul uses at other times. He's talking about being someone who's ministering the gospel to people. This is a, a calling that we all share. Paul's speaking of both people groups, um, Jews and Gentiles in this passage. It's not a geographical reference. And so you read that, you're like, everyone had heard the gospel's point? He's saying the gospel has gone to Jews and Gentiles alike. And the reason we know that is because Paul was going to continue his work and he had fulfilled the calling to give the gospel to both people groups. But in Colossians 4, 3, is going to say, pray for us so that we can keep going and tell more people about Jesus. He wasn't saying that everyone had already heard about Jesus. He goes, you need to pray for us because the work continues forward. And so he wants more opportunities to preach the gospel. And I want to point, I want to point out one more thing from verse 23, if I may. Paul said that he had become a servant of the gospel. The gospel wasn't serving him. Now, the way that I'm saying that is important. He had become a servant of the gospel, not the gospel was doing something for him or served his purposes. You understand God's calling on your life is not intended to serve your desires, your purposes to get done what you have to get done. In fact, oftentimes God wants to wreck our plans so that he can get his thing done and show us what really matters in life. Amen. So many times. You know, especially I always think of the missions field because somehow we're, we're just in a better place when we have less at our disposal, you know, and we're out of our comfort zone and we're like, okay, this wasn't the plan. God, what are we supposed to do? And I cannot tell you how many times, whether it's a domestic, you know, missions trip here in the United States or in Mexico or Haiti or Africa or wherever, where we've been, where we've been outside of the plan, our plan and, and just watched God's plan unfold. Just watch it unfold right in front of us. It's because the gospel isn't here to serve us and our purposes. We are here to serve the purpose of the gospel. And God will get that done when we submit to him, when we are servants to that. And we're under the commissioning of Jesus together. Now, before you get too down on yourself, because a lot of times you're like, I'm not up for this. I'm not qualified for that. I'm not qualified to go and tell people about Jesus. This will kind of make you feel better. <laughs> Notice the kind of part. First Corinthians chapter 1 Paul speaks to us in, in non-flattering terms, but really encouraging terms. As he speaks to the church in, in uh, Corinth, he, he really encourages all believers, I think, when he says this. Verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 1 down through verse 31. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And boast we shall. You guys, there's lots of things that you want your church to be known for scripturally. But I want this church to be heard in this community because we're boasting in the Lord. Because we are telling about the great things of God. We're not over here ooh, ooh, tooting our own horn about all the programs we have and all the cool things we're doing. It's not about that. We are here to boast in what our God is doing. We are here to boast about how great he is because people will forget us 
we never want them to forget him, ever. We're here to boast in the Lord, and it's time we do that. And we need to pray that the Lord will give us the ability to endure and persevere no matter what the future holds for us, no matter what's going on. And I want us to remember the words of James uh, in his letter, the second through fourth verse of chapter one, he said this, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Let endurance have its full effect. Don't wiggle out of whatever God's taking you through right now. There are some circumstances that we go through in life, and I don't want to say this in a vacuum. I want us to, to look at things logically. There are circumstances that we can go through in our life that we're like, this is bad. I want out now. Maybe God has you there for a reason. Maybe God wants to teach you endurance through this trial, through this suffering, through whatever you're going through, because you are going, you are going to emerge on the other end as a more mature, more powerful believer than you ever have been. He does that through the trial. He does that through the struggle. And F.F. Bruce said this. It's so good. He said, if the gospel teaches the final perseverance of the saints, it teaches at the same time that the saints are those who finally persevere in Christ. Continuance is the test of reality. Continuance is the test of reality. If you want to know what someone actually believes, they will show you. Church, we have to show the world what we believe. And that means we have to stay the course. It means we have to remain steadfast. Do you ever wonder why, you know, when there's persecution, this happens all the time, when there's persecution um, against missionaries or churches in really difficult regions, that oftentimes revival breaks out? Because continuance is the test of reality. Because when they suffer and they remain steadfast, it causes people around them to go, what in the world is that? Nobody could do that. You're like, you're right. You're absolutely right. Only Christ in you, the hope of glory can. Only Jesus can do that. Only the Spirit. Have we let the Lord take us to this place where that can be shown clearly? And here's the thing. He doesn't take us through that, push us off the edge and go, see at the bottom. He's right there with us every step of the way. He will not leave you there. He's walking with you through it. Church, I hope that this encourages us um, both to worship and to stay the course and to realize that his reconciliation has enabled us to be steadfast and established in what he's doing and to stay the course as long as he has us here for it. Have the worship team come back up and, and we're going to just go to a time of worship and uh, let me pray for you guys and let's respond to the Lord in this time. God, as we just consider that, Lord, as I think about those words that continuance is the test of reality, Lord, I don't have the strength in myself, and I know that we should all feel this way because it's just being honest, Lord. We don't have the strength in ourselves to do what you've asked us to do. And Lord, you've offered us your strength, your encouragement, but that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. And so, Lord, I just want to cry out to you on behalf of your church that you love, these people that are here, that you would show them, Lord, how you are working.
and that you are willing and working in them according to your good pleasure. Lord, if we will submit to you, if we will not look back and try to go back to the old ways, Lord, why would we ever want to go back to hostility and alienation away from you? Lord, we want to be right by your side because we recognize that nobody loves us like you, that no one has demonstrated that love like you have. God, that you are the only one who can save us. And so, Jesus, as we are in you, I pray for those who feel this morning condemned, Lord, who will look at themselves and and see a failure. Lord, for those who are in Christ Jesus, and I pray that this would be both an encouragement for believers and a call to non-believers to turn to you. Lord, I pray that we would read your word and accept it as truth. We are faultless. We are blameless. We are holy because of you, Jesus. It's who we are. And so, Lord, don't allow us to be drawn away and to be lied to by the enemy to believe that that we're not good enough. We don't have to be good enough. You saved us anyway while we were still sinners. And so, Lord, we just want to respond. We want to live a life that reflects your love, Lord. That's where all the good works comes from. That's where honoring you comes from. That's, that's where we want to be, Lord, is in obedience to you because of who you are, responding in a relationship with you. So, Lord, if, if we are trying to validate ourselves with works, would you just remind us that you completed the work? That what we do validates what we believe because we're in a loving relationship with you. Don't let us feel condemned as believers here this morning. God, I pray every person would see that they're cherished by you.